Do you want to talk about the Bible again? Sure. What are we going to talk about? Oh, I was thinking something more contentious and well-known. That sounds like fun. Listen in to find out more. Welcome to A Word from Our Outpost. With Joseph and Crystal Gruber. A podcast for Catholic disciples who are wrestling to be missionary-minded in their normal, everyday lives. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Direct, O Lord, our actions by thy holy inspiration, and carry them on by thy gracious assistance, that every word and work of ours may begin in thee, and by thee be happily ended. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So you want to talk about a contentious and well-known part of the Bible? Why not? Let's do it. So Genesis 22, sacrifice of Isaac. Yes. So this is the one where Abraham hears God tell him, sacrifice his son and the lord says to sacrifice the one whom you love your only begotten son which is an interesting point but we'll come back to that maybe and then he goes off the next day first thing in the morning and takes with him the son of his isaac and a couple of servants presumably to help him out servants explicitly (laughs) i forgot And then they go off. They're looking for the place that God's going to show Abraham. And once he figures out where that is, they leave the servants behind. And Isaac carries the wood for the offering, which means he's carrying enough wood to burn some sort of offering, which is not a small amount of wood, which means that any child... Bible picture of this story that I've seen that shows Isaac as a baby is wrong. Misleading for sure. Unless it's like a Kryptonian baby sort of situation. <laughs> Remembering that Kalal it was based on Moses. There is that, but pending Isaac being not Superman from Krypton and just a normal baby. Baby. Couldn't have been that. Who's not a baby anymore probably actually a strapping young lad that could carry a whole bunch of wood off with his dad who's super old i mean when you're a hundred when you have the kid you only get older from there so here they go the two of them off isaac asks hey dad we got wood we got fire what's the sacrifice gonna be or where's the lamb more specifically and abraham says the lord will provide And they get up there, and then Abraham starts binding Isaac, sets up the wood, puts him on it, all like he's going to be the sacrifice, gets out a knife. He's ready to slaughter his son. And then everybody's waiting. They're on pins and needles, edge of their seat. What is going to happen? Abraham hears God's voice. Wait, don't do it. And he stops. And most people, when they hear this story are super scandalized. Oh, you you forgot about what happens right after that. Oh, yeah. And then there's a ram. Well, the angel tells him not to kill his son. And then there's a ram that he can offer instead. And they offer the ram. And they offer the ram. So offering happens. And God's like, good job, Abraham. Good job. All <laughs> all around. Maybe we, should, maybe we should do it. Joseph and Crystal Gruber translation of the Bible. Just kidding. Let's not. No, no. It, it, could, it could sell like hotcakes. <laughs> Uh, we'll have to grow our audience a bit before we give that a try. Um, that that would be how we grew our audience. Oh, okay. Selling hotcakes. Continuing <laughs> on. 
So most people hear this story and are super scandalized by the fact that Abraham could bind his son and get a knife out and get so close to the point that he's about to kill his only son. Well, there's that only son thing again. But then he doesn't because an angel stops him. And you have a very interesting perspective on this. I don't think we should be surprised that Abraham is willing to offer his son. If if we wanted to take the story out of context for the moment, which is how oftentimes uh, it's presented, is an out-of-context story. Um, so I, for a little bit of context for our listeners, I've spent a fair bit of time with atheists and agnostics and, and people who are interested in those kinds of debates. And many of the uh, bigger anti-Christian, anti-religious movers and shakers will point to this story and say, see, you know, this is not the kind of God you want to follow. The Judeo-Christian God is not a good guy. Uh, don't follow him. This story proves it. Because he'll tell you to kill your son. Yeah. And then go back on his word. And then go back on his word. Arbitrary and maybe child killy. Uh but even if you want to take this story out of context, there, there are things that I'm not surprised about, and I, I wonder a little bit why people are so surprised. And maybe this is the cynic in me, totally open to that critique being leveled against me. Uh, but to say that there's something in the human heart to say that that is open to killing off uh, one's son, and uh, I say this with some reservation because I don't want people calling Child Protective Services on me, but historically speaking, this was not an uncommon phenomenon, especially in the Near East, especially with all the neighboring peoples around Abraham, right? We, we both have um, historical record and archaeological evidence that the sacrifice of children was not an uncommon thing, that the sacrifice of the firstborn son was seen to be an especially fitting offering to all the different gods and goddesses of that that time period in that area. And so we shouldn't be surprised that Abraham might go along with such a command. Uh, in fact, it should it should make a certain amount of sense to us, maybe. Uh, humanity isn't known for being always kind and loving. And I'm not trying to bash humanity. I am human. Uh, but I also understand the, uh, the reality of the human heart. There, there's something off about us. Um, so that shouldn't be the part that surprises us. The part that surprises us should be at the end where God intervenes and stops the sacrifice. And even more significantly, that Abraham stops himself, right? Just because God says, stop, don't, don't harm the lad, doesn't mean that Abraham wouldn't potentially continue on with what he had planned to do. And so we have uh, evidence that the narrative played out very differently in all of these other cultures that a father takes a son and sacrifices him. We have these records, but we don't read these stories. We don't talk about these stories. We don't say, this is, this is our history. This is part of what informs our culture. We actually point very much to uh, the Torah. We point very much to the Old Testament, the New Testament as well. Um, but like the five books of Moses, we, we point to those and say that there's something interesting going on there culturally that we want to say we're, we're coming from that. We don't want to say we're coming from a 
a cultural line where it plays out the other way, where the father does actually end up uh, offering his son as the sacrifice. And so that's interesting, right? The story is fundamentally different from the other stories that were happening concurrently with Abraham. And so whenever we come across things that are that stand out, we should take a look at them and say, like, what is actually different about this story and why? And how ought we to approach it then? And if we know, one, there's a difference that this story has been repeated thousands and millions of times, and not only repeated, but recorded and rewritten and rewritten, and not in the sense of um, taking the story and changing it, but, but literally copyists putting down word for word uh, what was in um, the copy that they're copying from. And so there's a significance to that, that all of the other stories that have faded don't have. And so to say, okay, there's something more here. What are these things that are more? Because the bare bones of it, uh, there's already something surprising. And so on further investigation, there's actually quite a bit that's surprising in this story that should cause us to question what's going on, right? Does that all make sense to you, Crystal? Yeah, it does. Um, Yeah. What were some of the things that stood out to you in the story that made you see it as unique? So I recently did a Bible study on this with some ladies. And in one couple of the ladies had a translation that when God speaks to Abraham, Abraham responds, ready. And and this idea that, that Abraham is listening and that as soon as he hears the Lord's voice, he's ready. And that he's even ready to change and do something that is different um like you're you're mentioning different from from what's sort of culturally acceptable um and i also think like it's it's there's part of me that's like it's hard to think to believe you that this story survived because it's so different um because it still kind of scandalizes me hearing it and yet um it it is like the fact of the matter is, is it it did stand the test of time because it is something different and it is something more admirable even in the messiness of it and isn't that true of human life and sharing life that even the most admirable examples are still kind of messy um which is frustrating <laughs> frustrating but there's also something I find it really exciting mm-hmm. that there are these elements that are confusing, right? And I, I like to think about the author Gene Wolfe, who is one of my favorite authors, sci-fi, fantasy, um, sometimes sort of like the American surrealist, um, wrote novels, short stories, an incredible guy, friend of another uh, fantasy writer, Neil Gaiman. And Neil Gaiman talks, he, he wrote like a little two-page uh, sort of tongue-in-cheek guide for reading Gene Wolfe. Um, and in it, he talks about how uh, Gene Wolfe knows what he's doing, right? We can trust him to know what he's doing, that he knows um, all of the details that are only alluded to, everything that is left out. He knows the details, and they all will cohere in the in the larger story. And I think, you know, Gene Wolfe, an incredible writer um, in one of his um, interviews or maybe one of his essays 
for a long time I was on a Gene Wolfe essay and interview reading kick. But he talks about how, you know, the the books of Moses uh, are actually an incredible literary feat. And he, so to have a sense of scale, good sci-fi and fantasy writers probably know about Gene Wolfe because he's the kind of author that they read because they have such high respect for him. So there are the people who don't write at all, and they probably read regular fantasy writers and sci-fi writers. And then the sci-fi and fantasy writers, they read Gene Wolfe because they have this realization that he has honed his craft, that he builds his worlds with words so well, that he understands characters so well, that he can get so much said in so little of a space and can convey so much that they read him and take note. And at least in this essay, it seemed very much like Gene Wolfe looks to the author of Genesis with that kind of eye. So Gene Wolfe reads Genesis for his inspiration, for his um, marveling at the craft of writing and the, and the craft of storytelling and the kind of challenge that is posed to the reader. And, and is that, that a helpful analogy? Yeah, it is helpful. And, and I think it, it's also, I mean, I've watched you, Joseph, sit with one paragraph of scripture for weeks or sometimes even months on end because if something doesn't make sense to you, you'll just pray with it until it does make sense, (laughs) i.e. you'll spend time with the author until the author lets you in on his secret. And, And so to look at this story of Isaac and Abraham and say, this frustrates me or this seems contradictory, or it seems like God's being a jerk face, um, is to say, I haven't spent enough time with this. And I think a lot of the people who bring up the story of the sacrifice of Isaac, I don't have the same kind of confidence that they have spent very much time with the story itself mm-hmm. as written, because people will make these, you know, they'll they'll say, you know, sacrificing a child is abhorrent. Okay, well, first off, the actual particulars of the story don't seem to imply that Isaac is a child in the story. So I agree, causing harm to innocence is a very problematic thing and something well worth discussing and well worth pondering and well worth talking to God about. However, this story is a relatively grown lad who is going along with yeah, with his father, who he could overtake and refuse to be bound yeah and so like that kind of easy caricature of the story where you're like well there's the text doesn't bear out the way that they're talking about it and so do they do they care more about the point that they're trying to make or do they care about the story and what it's actually conveying yeah and that i think with this particular story there there are many different avenues where people will say, oh, I want to make a point about something I don't like about my image of God, like that children have to suffer or like um, that sometimes it seems like God's contradictory. And they'll sort of use this story to say, see, see, here's evidence that this is how God is. When in reality, those, those might be very legitimate concerns to talk about in terms of how we relate to God and who God is. But when we dig in and spend time with this story, there's there's more than meets the eye at a first read through. 
there's the difference between exegesis, which is getting something from the text, and eisegesis, bringing my own biases, my own my own uh, preconceived notions to the text and making the text say what I want it to say. Mm-hmm. And I feel like like with the sacrifice of Isaac, oftentimes a lot more eisegesis is going in than exegesis coming out. Yeah. Because there's a lot of things that are unsettling about it and a lot of things that don't quite fit. And this is the thing to me that really f- is fascinating about a really good story is because when you sit with it for a long time, you can learn more about the author, which is what we want to do with scripture. But we can learn a lot about ourselves by our initial response to the story. So so the eisegesis piece is interesting because, I mean, it can just be a misleading thing to do, but it can also be a helpful self-revelatory thing to say, oh, this is my initial response to this. What does that tell me about myself and what, what can I learn from this response, which I think is interesting. And this, I think, is really interesting to a point that you brought up before we started recording of the sacrifice of Isaac, of we get what we have this initial like at least I have this initial like frustration and anger with this like why would you even consider following through with sacrificing your son and yet how often do do we put expectations on what we think our children ought to be or ought to do and spend everything for the sake of their own spend everything to put them on that altar right so we, we had talked, you know, maybe 30 episodes ago about Eve and Cain, right? The episode, I think, was called There's Something About Eve, mm-hmm. and talking about how Eve, uh, reading the text closely, you see Eve is likely expecting Cain to be her salvation, to be the one who undoes what they have done. And if that is the case, you know, her saying, from God I have purchased this man, and to name him purchased one really could warp him and to see in Isaac that potential for being warped for saying okay all of these promises that God has made to Abraham well you Isaac you're going to be the one who's going to forward this and so like a really interesting way to read this is a way to educate both Abraham and Isaac that the power of God's promise is actually more than their power to undo it like they don't actually have the power to stop God from fulfilling the promise that he has made them. Mm-hmm. And that's an interesting thing, right? It's not up to Isaac for God to work out his plan to the same degree that uh, most plans work. Like God's plan is somehow going to be different than and uh, more faithful than the promises of man. And so Isaac you know, some people will say, you know, maybe he's walking away from this story scarred for life. You know, uh, maybe he looks at his dad and, and you know, can't look at him anymore because of that horrific experience. Uh, but I think another way to look at it is he could have left that experience saying, oh, it really is going to be up to God to fulfill his promises. I am going to participate in God's saving plan but it's going to be up to God to bring it to fruition, mm-hmm. right? That kind of surrender that is much more healthy yeah. than what Cain was likely living through and what we oftentimes load our children with. When we say, 
okay, you're going to be my salvation. Okay, you're going to give me all the the um you're going to the be- fame and glory. You're going to be my ticket to, you know, whatever. Um, be the star. Insert childhood passion here that you didn't follow through with, sporting or musical or whatever. And to have this moment to say, no, no, Isaac, you're going to be Isaac, and God is going to be God. And this is the moment where we're just going to really lay it all down. Because this is this is a thing also when the story is taken out of context, is one of the main differences between this story and all of the other child sacrifices stories, other than the fact that the child is not sacrificed and it's not a child, one of the other differences is that uh, this God who has asked the sacrifice is implicated in the sacrifice, Right. Like, Isaac still needs to live in order for God's promise to be fulfilled. Um, so there, there's a lot riding on this. You know, is God greater than death? Mm-hmm. And that's one of the questions that this story is proposing. And Abraham walks in saying, God made a promise that this son, this son that I had with Sarah, is going to be the one through whom I'm going to have descendants like the stars in the sky and the sand of the sea. So, if that God is God, and he's faithful, and his word is true, then by the end of the day, I will be able to come back down the mountain with my son to the two servants like I told them that I would. So he believed in the resurrection. Right? So th- this is... this Seems is, to be implied. This is literally how the author of Hebrews interprets the story in chapter 11 of Hebrews, where he talks about how God... that Abraham had faith that God could even raise someone from the dead. Um, and so to say, like, the the way through the paradox of what God was asking is him seeing that God is not just a God of the living, but God over death itself. Like, death will not have power over the promises of God. Which is also super helpful when it's challenging as a parent to have kiddos that aren't quite meeting whatever expectation to realize like no like god is bigger than than all of this and and could raise something more of what he intended and better than what i imagined um which is pretty neat i'm not sure where to go from there (laughs) but like when we overload our children with with expectations to say no we actually need to let those expectations die we don't have to kill the children uh, but maybe this is one of the reasons why we shouldn't be so surprised by this story is that we do um, put our children to a kind of figurative death often, right? Like when we say, I'm going to care so much less for you, my child, than my work. You are going to be relegated to this kind of limbo. Um, I'm going to sacrifice my family for the sake of my job. I'm going to sacrifice my family for the sake of my pleasure. I'm going to sacrifice my family for the sake of insert random thing that we're worshiping, that we don't want to call a god, that we don't want to call an idol, but we are. And this is a scary thing, right? Like these false gods, these idols were demanding the sacrifice of the firstborn child because oftentimes they they stood in for these kinds of comforts, these kinds of success. Yeah, and, and that's interesting because, you know, it's so often... These things are done 
not out of a, a malicious place. Like it's done out of a desire often, you know, with the work example, it's like, oh, I'm doing this to provide for my family. You know, there's this, this communicated intent regardless. I mean, they'll say that. Yeah. And, and for some people, I think that it's true, but, but the fact of the matter is, is it's still a, it's still an unholy sacrifice. Yeah. And I, I don't want to tread too far into these waters because it, yeah, it's, a more painful topic and I, I wanted I wanted to do it with the mm, gentleness that it deserves because there are people today who will literally put children to death who are in the way of whatever it is that they are prizing most at that time and this you know, so if we believe that children are children in the womb and most of the language that we have about children refers to them as in the womb Right, like if I say, "Do you do you want me to tell you a dirty little secret about you that you probably don't want other people to know about?" It's that for a period of time you used to drink your own urine. Yes, you, oh listener, used to drink your own urine. Because everybody drank their own urine when they were swimming in amniotic fluid. Right, they drank the fluid, they peed it out, they drank that fluid too. But if we accede to that, if we say, "Yeah, okay, that's true," then we concede that we were in the womb, that we, not it, not that clump of cells that became us, but something that is fundamentally us was in the womb. So if we accept these things, and then we accept also the fact that there are people who procure abortions for all sorts of reasons, some of them uh, out of crisis, some of them not knowing any better, some of them... um, doing it for reasons probably similar to why children were sacrificed back in the days of Abraham uh, for the sake of success, for the sake of a, a, a career, for a sake of a relationship. Um, and so like we, we want to judge Abraham very harshly, uh, and we want to say, you know, Abraham was doing something so unheard of and so um, abhorrent. And it is abhorrent, and it is horrible, Sure, I'll grant you that, but also frighteningly common. Mm-hmm. And when we refuse to see that it is a common thing, and even if it isn't commonly played out, it may be a common desire, mm-hmm. right? The the introduction of a firstborn changes the dynamics of a of a marriage very much. It transforms the the wife into a mother, and for many men, that can be a very threatening thing. So the biggest threat possible to um, to a husband might be the little child that just came into the world, and to say, okay, that's that doesn't justify the killing, but it does go some way to explain why this could have been a common thing, and to say, okay, and that's one of the reasons why this story is so dramatically different, because if it was about, oh, God says it's okay to kill your child. We would expect to see that in Jewish history, the Israelites were murdering their children left and right. And that is not the case. Mm-hmm. That God in this moment is making a definitive end to child sacrifice in a way that all of the cultic pa- practices around them did not. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the defining things between them and the, the cults around them. And one of the horrifying things when any of the Israelites would slip into idolatry because it also led to things like 
child sacrifice. It also led to things like adultery. It also led to things just weird cultic practices, right? And I say weird knowing, again, these are things that are either not uncommon or at least not uncommon to the heart of man today. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is the definitive end for the Israelites of the question of, do I sacrifice my child? It's like, no, I do not. I choose my child and I choose some other sacrifice. There's still a sacrificial system in place for Abraham, which we could talk about. I don't know if we're going to talk about that right now. But for all the people who say, oh, this story is horrible because it condoned child sacrifice, if it really did, we would expect a very different history from that point on for the Israelites. Mm-hmm. Um, and if they say, oh, but I've you know discovered the hidden meaning to this, it's like, well, maybe maybe you're the one who's actually reading too superficially. Maybe the people who have been wrestling with this story for literally millennia, maybe they actually have a better handle on some of the lessons that it teaches. And maybe that's actually a lot more respectable than we think it is. And if we're not finding the respectable part of it, if we're not finding the thing that is leading to a better life, maybe that's actually an invitation to continue wrestling with the text. Yeah. So I think with that said... We could probably record several more podcasts about different aspects of this Especially, can I do a bit of a spoiler? Sure. One of the things we were thinking about is doing stories from Genesis that are Eucharistically themed. And so we did the podcast on Genesis uh, 14, the Battle of the Nine Armies, which I enjoyed quite a bit in the recording. This one was supposed to be another Eucharistic-themed podcast, but then we realize there's actually, it's a, easier to talk about a story that's lesser known because people don't walk in with any preconceived notions. Yeah, but we decided that there was probably a bit of baggage, for lack of better words, with this story that we wanted to address before diving into the Eucharistic imagery. Can I say a few more things about this context-wise? Sure. Because I know you want me to wrap this up, but I don't want to yet. <laughs> so context is so key to this. That it's not even funny. The chapter before this, Ishmael, the older son of uh, of Abraham, is actually given up into the wilderness. And Abraham is afraid that by letting him go, by being passive with him leaving, that he might come to harm. And God speaks to him and says, nope, I got this. I'll take care of him and his mom. Don't worry about it. Not only that, but they'll also there will be a great nation that comes from them too. Don't worry. So there's already a context for Abraham losing a son and God guaranteeing the son's safety. And so that's interesting because those two stories are right after each other and they don't off... Well, there's actually a little uh, segment where Abraham makes a covenant with another guy um, just in between, but they're very close to each other, um, just a chapter apart. Anyway, the other thing that is worth wrestling with is what God asked of Abraham is not actually possible yet in Abraham's lifetime. God asks for him to go to Moriah and to sacrifice his son, his only begotten son, his son whom he loves, Isaac. But we just talked about the fact that he is not actually Abraham's only begotten son. Right. And this is going to be something that is so key for understanding the story and its place in salvation history is that God is setting something up that is not actually completable 
So Abraham can take Isaac anywhere he wants. He could, you know, stick a knife in him anywhere, anytime. It's not going to actually fulfill the command of God yet because Isaac isn't the only begotten son of Abraham. Um, and I could go, uh, I've, got a, I've got a crazy theory about this that I don't <laughs> think Crystal wants me to talk about, but it's linking something that uh, God says to Cain with what's going on here. I think we should save it for another podcast. That's fair. Um, but this idea that, that the story itself is telling us that there's more to this than, than can be done in this story, that it's opening itself up to something more. The, the ram that's caught in a thicket, right? The ram is not actually the lamb that Isaac was expecting, and it's not the Isaac that Abraham was expecting. It's something else totally uh, related, but something else. Mm-hmm. And this actually, one of the reasons why the, um, the Israelites will blow into a ram's horn at certain feasts at Yom Kippur and one other one that's slipping my mind right now, um, the blowing of the ram's horn is to recall this instant, as well as other instances in salvation history. But this instant, which is to say, the ram is not actually the sacrifice that God was going to provide. And so Israel is looking forward to a sacrifice that would actually complete what God had said in a way that makes sense, in a way that is not horrific, in a way that actually, when we look at it, we say, oh, I get it. This makes so much more sense. And wow, does that make Genesis 22 just shine with a light that it did not have before. But we can get that to that in another podcast. Yeah. Well, it was fun to think through why this story shouldn't scandalize me in the way that I want it to when I first read it. Let it scandalize you the way that you do the first time you read it, but keep reading it. Yeah. Right? Yep. Like... Yep. I trust Gene Wolfe when I read one of his stories and I'm like, I don't know what's going on with this, Gene. This feels weird. And sometimes, yeah, he writes horror stories, so watch out. <laughs> um, but any kind of confusion to trust the author and say, no, there's probably more to this. Yeah. You know, we had a podcast a long time ago about um, there's something more to this story when people just tell a story and we're not sure why or what point and to have that that assurance, you know, there's a reason people offer us these stories mm-hmm. in conversation. There's a reason why these stories are being told. And so we have to ask the question, you know, what what more is in this story? Yeah. What is trying to be, what is being conveyed in this? And to have that same approach to scripture and that same approach to Genesis 22 and to say, let's go back. Let's look at it again. What if I look at it a different way? Let's look at it from Abraham's eyes. What about those two servants? What about Isaac? What about the angel? What about the differences in the language from this to that? Does it mean something when God first says Abraham in the beginning, and when the angel talks to him, he says, Abraham, Abraham? So much. So with that, one of the things that we want from this podcast for you, our audience, is that listening to any one of our podcasts isn't enough on its own, and that you have food for thought that you want to discuss with somebody and hopefully you have somebody you can discuss with. We also check our little Facebook group from time to time and are trying to figure out other social media things, but that's a little clunky. Um, But we love hearing from you. And um, if you think this is really awesome and helpful, you can also rate it or comment 
or leave a review because apparently those things are helpful in helping podcasts. I don't know if they are. Honestly, I'd be happy if people just said, this was an interesting topic and worth the, you know, 20 minutes at double speed. I should send this to a friend and maybe we can take a look at Genesis 22 together sometime. Yeah, that'd be pretty I, awesome. I would love that if, if people did that. Like, oh, maybe tonight instead of watching Netflix, I'll take a look at Genesis 22. Maybe I'll check out a commentary. Yeah. Let us know if you find anything awesome. And probably someday we'll record another podcast on Genesis 22. I, I did leave a couple of cliffhangers, so we probably should. Yeah. All right. Would you pray us out? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for the richness of the scriptures. Thank you for the opportunity for Joseph and I to unpack them together. And I pray for our listeners that they would also find the time and the space to do so, that they might come to know you more fully. I ask all this in your holy name. Amen. Amen. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So take my hand and let's be on our way. And now, finally, I can say that I love you. Yes, I from our outpost to yours, thanks for listening. And a special thanks to John Mark Skoke. That's S-K-O-C-H. For the music. Check him out on Spotify. 